Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here. Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. That's probably around 13 kilograms. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. 
He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Good, let me just pray for us one more time. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this story, this narrative that we look at this afternoon, uh, this morning, sorry. And Lord, we pray uh, that you'd help us. Lord, we thank you that as we open your word, we trust that you speak to us today. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to listen and respond to you. Amen. Uh, Well, I'd like you to think of your favorite story Uh, And I mean story in the widest sense of the term. It might be a novel, a series of novels. It might be a a film or series of films. It might even be that your favorite story is one that you've told a number of times, uh, a story of your own life or or someone near to you. Uh, But it's got to be something that you've gone through, revisited, rewatched, or reread numerous times. Your favorite story. Can you think of one? Got one? Okay. Maybe it's Lord of the Rings. Maybe it's Chronicles of Narnia. Often favorites like that that we read through as children or read through with children or revisited and reread. Maybe it's a film, a favorite film, The Matrix, a classic, something like that. A film that you watch and watch and you revisit the storyline. But one thing is for sure, whatever the story the numerous times you revisit it, you never feel quite the same as the very first time you read it or watched it or experienced it. Because the very first time that you are in a story or you watch or feel a story for the very first time, it is way more emotionally loaded, isn't it? Because you just don't quite know how things are going to turn out. But then, when you go back to rewatch it, reread it, retell it, it's interesting, isn't it, how you just pick out some of the details. You notice, ah, oh, that little contributing detail that you never noticed before because you didn't know the context of the wider story or why it was important or where that little thing was going to show up later in the book or film. You notice all the details, you begin to notice more and more details on how they contribute to the wider story. I don't know if you've ever avoided uh, a sports fixture or the result of a sports fixture. At Town Church Bristol, we meet at 4 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, which is, is great for lots of reasons, but not for big uh, Sunday football matches. Last week was one of them, Liverpool playing Man United, And I uh, decided I would avoid it. Um, 
Now, if you've ever been in that uh, situation where you avoid a football match until match of the day, you'll know it is a very, very difficult thing to do. And even more difficult if anybody knows that you're trying to avoid it. Because even by not saying anything or trying not to say anything, people give things away all the time. Now, last week, I... Um, didn't really tell anyone as I was avoiding the score, but I, I actually had the thrill of getting to match of the day without knowing the result. But even then, a few things that were said to me along the way and things I heard through the day just gave me a little inkling as to what was going to happen. Um, I'd had quite a long day. I'd been traveling, and um, I was trying to work out whether or not I was going to wait up till 10.30 to watch it, or even if I'd try and wait till the next morning. And my wife said to me, oh, well, don't worry, it'll be the first game on. And it, just that, I mean, she didn't know there was only two games last, last Sunday. <laughs> but, but even just that little tiny detail gave me a sense that there was something impressive about the game. And you see, then, as you watch the way the story of the day is un, uh, uh, recounted, the way the um, presenters and the commentators pull together the details. Uh, you'll know if you follow Match of the Day or really the media at all, yesterday was a, a bad case for Match of the Day. It was a very odd one. There was, there was next to no talking in the whole program, and it was odd. Because what the pundits and what the commentators do is they pull together the significant details to give you a picture of what's going to happen. And that means that when you sit down to watch Match of the Day, you can often work out what's going to happen by some of the tiny details that get included. If a yellow card is given some time in an eight-minute portion on one match, you think, why is that being that person's going to get sent off at some point later in the game. They've included the details that contribute significantly to the wider story that is coming. You know where the story is going, so you include the significant things. And here in the book of Ruth, we're unraveling the story. And chapter 2 gives us the benefit of something like the editor's notes that contribute to the wider story of where it's going. And chapter 2 begins with one of these notes, and it's interspersed with these little details that open up the door for some hope for this family. This week we're going to see three scenes, the introduction, the mealtime, and the debrief. So first, the introduction have a look at verse 1. It'd be really helpful if you do keep your Bible open. I'm just going to read different points of it as we go through. Verse 1, it's a detail we didn't already know. It's a detail that Ruth didn't seem to know. Have a look down at verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. It again, it opens the door with some sign of hope for Naomi. Because until this point, remember last week, it's all been tragedy. But the end of chapter 1, the harvest is starting. Until then, there's been no source of income for her in her context. There's no men to provide for her. There's nothing that... Naomi and Ruth's experience that was particularly hopeful so far. 
And so verse 2, we carry on with the story. Ruth goes to collect food for them from the corners of the field. Now that might sound a bit random that that's where they're going and that's what they're doing, but there's a reason for it. Uh, Leviticus chapter 23 verse 22 says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. That was a command given to God's people that they would operate like this. So it seems that someone that is set out to listen to what God has to say is leaving the corners of their field. And so Ruth had hope that she could still support Naomi. And look at verse 3. She goes out to collect the food she's gleaning. And whose field is it that she ends up in? Of course, the field of Boaz who was from the clan of Elimelech, who just might be able to help. But look at carefully at the language of verse 3. It's brilliant language. It's brilliant editor's notes that shapes how we read the story. Did you notice those words in the middle of verse 3? As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it turned out. As if it was some kind of coincidence or that the details of the story just randomly fell into place. No, no, it's not saying that. It is saying that the author is convinced that God is in complete control of how it turned out. The author's employing irony to set up what's going to happen for us as we read further into the story. A number of years ago, uh, we were living, my wife and I, in Baldock, which is a town just north of London. Actually, we were staying with my parents just for a bit of time, um, trying to find somewhere to live. I think we'd just found out my wife was pregnant with our, our first son, and we were keen, as you can imagine, to get our flat uh, quick as we could. Um, but it was difficult because I was a student uh, at Theological College at Oak Hill, and my wife was about to go on maternity leave. We had a tight budget, and um, we were looking in a fairly affluent area just north of London, so it was very difficult to find a place. I remember looking around more properties than I think I've ever looked around since, looking at really grim places, um, places that I would have happily lived in, but you just look and you go, ah, maybe there's somewhere better for us. Hopefully there's somewhere better for us. I remember going to place after place thinking, there's got to be somewhere we can stay. We were hosting various things at the church as we did a lot of work with the youth, and so we were keen to have some space uh, to have people around. And so we kept looking, and I remember the more flats we looked at, the more it felt like there wasn't quite the right place to go. And we found this one flat. And it seemed very nice. It had enough space. And we came away and we heard the price and we thought, no, there's no way we can do it. We went away, talked about whether or not it was potentially in our budget. And we thought there's maybe just a way we can stretch. We left a note with the estate agent 
and we waited for the call the next day for them to return the call. And I remember going to bed that night feeling slightly uneasy. We'd, we'd almost given our word to an amount of money we, we didn't really know how we were going to pay up each month. And as it happened, as it turned out, I woke up the next morning to a message on my phone from a missionary that I'd known for 15 years that had been sent from our home church that was working in um, East Asia, and um, she had sent a message uh, overnight, and it said, um, it simply said, are you looking for a flat in Baldock? And I just replied straight away saying, yes, yeah, we're desperate to find somewhere. Didn't think anything of it. Didn't think any more of it. The next thing I, I know later on in the morning, I think I was on the train in the, on the way into college, I get a call from the landlord, from, from the estate agent, sorry, and they just said, I've never had anything like it, but this morning I got a call from the landlord and they've significantly reduced the rate of the rent and they want you to move in immediately. I can't remember the exact details of the figure or exactly how much was taken off, but it was staggering. See, as it turned out, with no careful planning from us, no clever ideas, we just happened to decide on a flat that belonged to a friend of ours, a missionary, that was able to reduce the price of the flat significantly. A missionary who was delighted to see this building used for God's work in that area. And look, as I tell that story, I realize it's, it's very rare, isn't it, that things like that become so clear, so quickly. More often than not, the story continues, like we see here. It might look from our human perspective like things happen by chance. Normally because we don't get that perspective. We don't get those editor's notes coming into our consciousness as we wander through life. Look at verse 4. Boaz greets the harvesters warmly. And then for some reason, he asks after Ruth. The workers explain she's returned from Moab with Naomi, and presumably at that point, something twigs for Boaz. And so he has a vested interest for the family. He's got this role as Kingsman Redeemer. He's got a vested interest for what's going on there. And so look at verse 8, what Boaz says to Ruth. Have a look down. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. You see, at this moment, it, it seems as though the tide's beginning to turn for Ruth and Naomi. But without the editor's notes that we've seen so far... Do you see how it might not have looked quite like that? Do you see the editor's notes that we've picked up just in the first couple of verses of chapter 2 give us significantly more hope of where the story's going? 
we, many of us will have been very familiar with this story already. And even just looking at those couple of sentences, they, they give us a very obvious direction of where this is going for Ruth and Naomi. But maybe it might not have been quite so obvious for Ruth in the moment. Look how she responds in verse 10. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found so much such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? See, to Ruth, it makes no sense. Remember, she's still in the trenches. She's fighting hard for survival. She's in the context of tragedy and chaos. It makes no sense to her that someone would show such favor on her. And here's where Boaz pulls together what we've seen so nicely. Look at verse 11. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You see, it's clear from this as-it-turned-out meeting that God is in complete control. We might use the word sovereign. But in the moment, Ruth or Boaz can't quite see the plan unfolding quite as we can as we read with the editor's notes. Boaz, he's made a decision to honor God. He's acted with his field as God wants. He's showing kindness. He's welcoming a stranger. He's taking very seriously his role as he sees this family. And in his response, you see something of Ruth's intention too. Her intention was to honor Naomi's God by supporting her and finding refuge in him. You see, in play at the very same time, we see two significant things. God is sovereign. He's in complete control and in charge of every detail of this story. And Ruth and Boaz are responsible for making their decisions and whether they honor God. The two things, they don't contradict each other, they work in tandem together. The theological term for that is concurrence. At the very same time, God is sovereign in complete control of all things. And we are responsible for our own actions. And that's really helpful for us. Because sometimes in the mess, in current circumstances, when things are tricky, when things are painful when there's tragedy. Sometimes in moments like that, there's no way for us to clearly work out what God's sovereign plan is. And yet, we know that God is in complete control. He is at work, and we can trust him. And actually, that means it is always good for us to make decisions that honor him. He is the sovereign king of the universe. I wonder when we talk about 
tragedy, chaos, tough circumstances, what it is that comes to mind. It's clear that for some of us in the room, that will be very live. There'll be real sadness and tragedy going on right now. And it might not be quite clear how God is at work for us today. It might not be obvious how God is pulling together all things for your good. But God is faithful even to a people who fail him. And he's gracious in using even our own actions as part of his plan. Today you can cling to him in the midst of really difficult things, in the midst of really mundane things. And remember that it is good for us to make decisions that honor him. Well, look what happens next. Boaz's kindness continues. God's kindness continues. Scene two is the meal time. Ruth, she's invited to dinner. She eats all that she wants, and there's leftovers. She gets up to carry on, go about her day, but Boaz helps her even more. We heard an ephah of barley is something like 13 kilograms, two weeks supply for two people, and it's quite easy to kind of skate across the details, but that's an unbelievable abundance of food for people that could not eat, for people that were struggling to find any food for themselves. You know that feeling of being given something far more than you expected, far more than you could hope for, so much so that you can't quite get your head around how to respond, so unbelievably generous. Here are Ruth and Naomi. They've been struggling for years. They're lonely. They're vulnerable. They can't provide for themselves. And as it happened, on meeting this man, everything's changed. You can just imagine her walking back to Naomi, can't you? Can you imagine Ruth coming away from that room, walking back to Naomi, trying to work out how she's going to tell the story? trying to work out what she's going to say. Beaming, fully laden with barley, thinking, oh, Naomi, have I got a story for you. Just, Just imagine that moment as Naomi, empty and bitter, really hurting, about to have Ruth come back. I wonder what that kind of moment is or has been recently for you. When a child sleeps through the night for the first time, when it was so desperately needed, when you receive a a gift of money that was so desperately needed, the provision of a new job, maybe you go immediately in those moments, to thanking who gave it to you. Maybe you think immediately of of giving thanks to the person that gave you the gift or the opportunity. Or maybe you think, oh, well, it's about time, 11 months in, that we had our first 
sleep through the night. It's about time. Maybe you think, oh, well, I've been applying for a quite enough jobs now. I think I deserve the break. How is it you respond in moments like that? Well, let's have a look and see Ruth and Naomi's response. Scene three, we have the debrief. You know those moments? You know those moments when you come into the house to share with your family after a long day or a big moment or you're walking away from a job interview or um, some significant event and you get on the phone to a friend or a family member and you have that debrief. I just can't wait to tell you what happened. Ah, this happened. This is what happened. Look at Naomi's response as she sees Ruth come in with 13 kilograms of barley. Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Naomi wants to know who's responsible for this kindness. And Ruth explains it's Boaz. And look at Naomi's response. Have a look down at verse 20. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Here's where it's interesting in our story. Probably for the first time, something one of the characters says actually adds detail to our perspective and what's going on. This is not an editor's note. This is something that is being said at the time. Any other time that there's been detail added till this point is from the editor, and it helps us to recognize that God is at work, sovereign in all that's going on through this narrative, but not here. Here, Naomi seems to be recognizing God's kindness. Here's two clues. First, Naomi orientates her response towards God, not just towards Boaz, you see, she says, the Lord bless him. She recognizes that it's Boaz's decision to honor God. But look at the second thing she says, verse 20. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. I wonder as you read that. I wonder who you thought that he was. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Probably Boaz, as we read it just as normal. But it could equally be God. In fact, there's many scholarly arguments about who it is that that he refers to in that sentence. I'm not sure we can know for sure. In fact, it might just be that it's deliberately ambiguous. But what we can surely say, at the very least, is that it's God's loving kindness shown through Boaz. Naomi has responded by acknowledging God. He has to have something to do with it. Here's the second clue. Look back down at verse 20. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. And so we see a glimmer of hope for Naomi, for her family. That's exactly what this family needed. They needed someone in that culture to rescue them. Within that culture, they'd have appointed figures guardian or kinsman redeemers who could be the ones to redeem the family. And you see, 
a remarkable change in Naomi. Do you see that change there as she opens the door to Ruth with the barley? As they debrief, she's gone from feeling bitter and burdened to feeling blessed and hopeful. She's coming to recognize God's loving kindness. And as they debrief together, you can just imagine, can't you? Sat across the kitchen table, maybe with a cup of tea, Naomi and Ruth talking about the day. As they reflect, there's still a danger, isn't there? There's still a danger that she remains bitter of all that's gone by in the past years. There's still a danger that she only clings to the hope of provision, food, shelter, safety. She could have lifted up Boaz as the solution in this moment. But what does she do? She recognizes that Boaz is reflecting God's loving kindness to his people. Boaz is obedient to the law. And so for us, Boaz reflects the loving kindness of God. We're to look through Boaz, a redeemer, to Jesus, the redeemer, who when we were far off, when we were empty, alone, in desperate need, bitter, vulnerable, Jesus gave himself for us. And there's a danger, like we saw last week, that in really trying circumstances, in grief, in sadness, in sorrow, we lose sight of the faithful God. A faithful God is faithful even to protect a people that reject him. A God who gives us all we need in Jesus. But there's a danger too that in the day-to-day we don't recognize his loving kindness. I wonder, are you in danger of inadvertently saying, as it happened, as it turned out, are you in danger of being fixated on the good things of life and not recognizing the good giver? Sometimes I'm challenged that we're slow to say, God's done this, God's given this, and I think it's right that we're cautious, but I wonder if we could be more intentional in reading the stories of our own life as we read Ruth. Do you keep a record of the things that you pray for? Do you write down the things you ask God for? Could you revisit those things that feel like a significant burden today and revisit them in weeks, months, years to come? Are you in danger that when God shows you his loving kindness today, you become fixated on the gift and not the giver? Or even the human source of the gift and not the giver? See, wonderfully, we're called into church family when we trust in Jesus to reflect God's loving kindness 
And so when people come around to help, when we cook meals for one another, when we babysit, when we care for one another in times of need, when we take one another to the hospital, they're brilliant things, really kind. But is our reaction just to say, thank you, or thank God? Look as we close this morning. Just have a look at verse 22. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. See, she doesn't know what. She doesn't know how. But she knows that it will be good to stay near Boaz. And so we eagerly await the next chapter of Ruth. But as we close this morning, there's three ways I think we can look in our own lives like Naomi does. When the story's unfolding, we can look back on God's faithfulness, on how he's never failed in his extraordinary commitment to his people, look back on what he's done throughout the Bible, look back on what he's done throughout his people, look back on what he's done throughout your own life, and recognize that God is faithful. He is in control of all things. We look back, we look out for God's loving kindness. Will you employ an active orientation that sets out to recognize God in the mess? Because he uses, as it turned out, moments. He uses the faithfulness of his people. He uses those things in many different ways to show his loving kindness to his people. Will you look out for God's loving kindness? And will you look forward? Look forward for God's deliverance. And look, just like Naomi here, we don't know quite how it's going to unfold for Naomi. Well, we do. She doesn't. We don't know quite how it's going to unfold for us. In any given circumstance, we don't know if there's going to be miraculous intervention on its way or a long struggle that culminates in a glorious deliverance into heaven. We don't know, but we do know for sure that God will deliver his people and we can trust in him. Will you look back on God's faithfulness? Will you look out for God's loving kindness Will you look forward for God's ultimate deliverance? Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that as we read through this story, we have the benefit of the editor's notes. We can see just how clearly you are at work. Father, please would you help us to look at our own lives in this way? Would you help us to recognize your faithfulness in what you've done for us already? Would you help us to actively look out for how you are at work today? And would you help us to look forward to our ultimate deliverance when we'll be with you, experiencing your loving kindness perfectly forever? Amen.